0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Novum Insightful. I'm here with Adam Simmons, who's from Radix, a Challenger DLT that's quite big in the London scene here, and excited to be catching up with Adam and seeing where Radix, which has been a a very distinct project in this space, see how it's getting on and uh, see what you're building. So Adam, welcome to the Novum Insightful. Thank you very much for having me and um, Please to be here. So obviously we've talked a bit in the past about how Radix is trying to create a different DLT in this space. How are things progressing? Yeah,
1: they're progressing really well. So uh, Radix has been around for quite a while. We started back in 2013 um, when our founder got bit by the Bitcoin bug and was like, this technology has got the promise to do some incredible things on a global scale. Um, but it can't manage with 100 transactions per second, let alone the amount of um, scale that 8 billion people and 300 million businesses would bring. Um, So Dan, our founder, um, started with a, a research team, really going down the rabbit hole of how do you make distributed ledger technology Work at that scale. Um, the culmination of that is where we are now, which is our Cerberus consensus algorithm, um, which is a DLT. It's not technically a blockchain um, or a DAG or a hash graph. It's its own uh, special kind of thing, but still fully
0: decentralized, permissionless network. And the first version of that went live last summer. Fantastic. And how's it going? I mean, it's, in terms of getting adoption on the DLT. Yeah, so it's been going really well. The
1: the big thing. For everything we do in Radix, is we like to say we're we're very intentful with what we do, and quite different to most people in the industry. We started from the end state and work backwards. So we're like, what would what would Web3, DeFi, what, whatever you want to call it, need to look like if it's going to have global usage and is going to be having the 400 trillion dollar global economy running on the back of it. And so everything we've released, we did a lot of R&D to, to have a no-compromise approach to how consensus worked. Um, we then went to the stage of going, well, is that the end of the story? Can you just put the Ethereum virtual machine on top of that and, and does it work? And just like mixing Lego and MegaBlocks doesn't work, duct tape hastily added uh, pretty precariously, um, we found the same thing. So Radix actually has a full stack solution. So we have our own consensus serverus, we have our own execution environment called the Radix engine, our own programming language based on Rust uh, called Scripto, um, and something we're revealing on the 8th of December, uh, which is next week, depending on when this goes out. Um, we then have uh, our own entire UX UI interface layer to that. And all of them are heavily, heavily intertwined in how they work to provide the experience that users, developers and entrepreneurs need to really fulfill this kind of future ecosystem of, of Web3. As for how it's going, well, the first version of Cerberus went live last summer, as I said. Um, that's a, a simple Im- implementation of Cerberus, really there to show the core consensus is operating as expected, that it's resilient and robust, and that it is able to the, the kind of civil protection through delegated proof of stake is is working effectively. Uh, really proud to say that since it went live, it's done over a million transactions per second. It's had zero downtime, and for the entire time, has been a completely permissionless open network uh, operated by independent validator nodes
0: uh, on a global basis. Fantastic! And in terms of sort of the challenge for a new layer one is really getting the mind share of builders and people creating things on on the blockchain, and then users to um, use the tools that have been developed. Um, are there any sort of metrics of success besides the speed of the blockchain and and um the solidity of the transactions kind of thing what's your sort of traction there
1: yeah so a big part of our strategy has been really working out what people need um so asking the question of like what what is what is the challenge and so our our programming language scripto went into early access in december 2021 and since then we've had over 5000 developers use it we've run uh, kind of developer full day developer workshops where we've had we've only done two of them so far um, each time it was in multiple cities across europe and we've had a couple of hundred people turn up in person to try this out and they they come in never having touched crypto and they they leave having built something like a full nft marketplace for example and the way we've been able to achieve that was really looking at what was the barrier to developer adoption and, and why was this a problem. And for people who don't know, roughly there's about twenty thousand full time Web3 developers in in the space. And now that sounds like a huge number until you realize that there's about twenty seven million developers worldwide. And this isn't through lack of awareness. I mean crypto, Web3, it's been on the front page of, of everything for a long time now, and many people have tried it. The problem is, if, and the analogy I like using is, building in Web3 today is kind of like trying to make a video game without a video game engine. And so for those of you who don't know, when you back in the 90s, if you wanted to make a video game before game engines existed, your first step was starting with the really low-level hard work of programming a physics engine, how light works, shadows, rendering engines, etc. And one, that, that's really hard, boring work for the most part. And secondly, it takes a huge amount of time. So about 80% of game developers' time is spent doing this stuff and then only 20% on actually building the gameplay and the fun bits that their, their user base wanted. And in video games, as we all know, what, what happened was some companies looked at this and were like, all of these games need these physics engines, rendering engines, et cetera. What if we made a game engine? And things like Unity and Unreal came out and revolutionized the space. It gave... Developers the tools to create these highly adaptable frameworks um, and systems to build these games And, and suddenly games got bigger more users came in and Literally in a very short space of time video games as an industry became bigger than music TV and cinema combined And a big part of that was things to engines and game engines aren't restrictive This is the thing some people misunderstand this analogy and think it's like a website builder and you just drag and drop blocks now, while game engines do have different assets you can import from other people have made, which is great for collaboration and building on, on top of what other people have already got, but they're still highly adaptable. Most people's games will probably be on a planet, for example, so gravity will be there. But a game engine doesn't say that if your game is based in space that you have to have gravity. You can just go into the settings and turn it to zero, and then do everything else that you'd still want. And that is exactly what Radex has done with Scripture and the Radex engine. And some of these things that have enabled this sound in hindsight really really simple um, so an example of that is assets as a native function of the language and so what that means is that assets behave or digital assets behave as physical objects so as a developer it becomes very intuitive and very secure to build defined web three
0: applications yeah, no, fantastic, fantastic. So I mean, it's always a challenge, I think, in terms of the switching. And I think we've we've seen a number of Ethereum and EVM competitors merge and I guess lately um, the rise and decline, I'd say, of Solana has been one of the sort of more dramatic ones. I wouldn't want you to be commenting on a competitor, but it, it sort of strikes me in my mind that there's always been these very hot new layer ones. And EOS, back in the day, was, was similar. And what we see is there's still a huge switching cost that people in Web3 are quite reluctant to move off the EVM world and Solidity um, to a lesser extent, Bitcoin, just because there's just not that much development around Bitcoin. How do you think Radix is going to carve out the, obviously you've designed as a DLT for the future, but how do you get that traction and how do you get people building out with you?
1: Yeah, so really, really good question, and it's it's one of the hard bits, and it definitely has trade-offs. So when you look at the approach Radix has taken, it's been a very intentful way we've developed things. So just in this taking a full stack approach, for example, gives you lots of benefits. Um, we we get to build a system that's highly integrated and offers benefits to users, developers, and entrepreneurs. Across the entire stack. Obviously, that downside is you can't go and copy paste solidity code um, or an Ethereum smart contract over onto Radix. Now, that is a problem, and I'd actually say that one of the ways we are going about having success in that is slightly uh, rebutting the the premise of your question of how do we carve out our space in that. And I'd say that that's the wrong piece. There's there's 20,000 developers in Web3 right now, out of 27 million developers worldwide. We're not really that concerned if someone is a a production grade solidity developer today. Fantastic. I mean, for a start, they're, they're probably making huge sums of money. Um, they're also probably not sleeping too well at night, worried about hacks and exploits, um, and countless audits. I mean, six, about six billion dollars of hacks, smart contract hacks have happened in total. Great for them. Like they're doing a fantastic job working on really hard problems and they're probably some of the most intelligent coders probably in the world. They should keep doing that. The Radix approach is going, well, what if we made it the time to talent for being able to build production grade dApps? Shorter. so one one of the sayings that our our c t o absolutely loves is like scripto gives you the shortest path from idea to managing a hundred billion dollars in adapt and that's exactly our ethos and we heard from doing about we we spoke to about a thousand developers both in in web three and outside of it in fintech et cetera and all of them came back and were like yeah we anyone who was in the space is like building in solidity really sucks like it's stressful, it's unintuitive, security is the number one concern we have. Project owners who were hiring talent was like the talent pool just isn't there. There's a handful of people who can realistically build production great dApps. And people who'd looked at it from, say, like the FinTech Center were sitting there and, and looking at Solidity, being like, There's some amazing things we could build. And we took one look at Solidity. And there's no way we would ever get sign off from our our like risk team or compliance team to manage user funds with that system. The so the vulnerabilities were just way too high. And so our view is like, well, what if we tackle those problems? What if we actually deal with those? And that does make a, a short-term pain because you don't have an easy, an easy transfer of things that have already been built. But what we found is, using the example of something like Uniswap, a, a decentralized exchange, is that when you, if you ask someone who's not a Solidity developer to describe how Uniswap works, conceptually it's really simple. Like the user has a wallet that has token A in it. There's a UniSwap pool that swaps token A to token B. You send token A to the UniSwap pool. It does some internal logic and pushes out token B. The user then gets token B in their wallet. It's pretty simple. And even even the internal logic of UniSwap V2 is not that hard. It's it's A times B equals K. Um, there's there's no economic or, or finance awards going in there for intuitive or incredibly complex uh, math. But as any Solidity developer knows, is that that's not how Uniswap works in Solidity. In Solidity, for a start, the user account doesn't have any tokens in it. It's just the private key that gives it access to the ERC-20 smart contract that they're using in Uniswap. They interact with an ERC-20 contract for the LP token for that pool in Uniswap that Uniswap instantiated and give that contract permission to update its balance of the token A and token B in their own smart contract. And that's all done by messaging in a quite complex system. Not very many users know that when you go into Uniswap and click approve, for example, for it to spend your USDC or use your USDC, that most of the time you're giving it a blanket permission to update that balance, which is fine if, if Uniswap is a good actor, which seems to be. And if the, the, the UI has no bugs or or mistakes or anything like that and there's no exploits, sure. But that permission gives. That smart contract, the ability to set your USDC balance to whatever it wants to. Most users don't understand that. And and, the Radex engine, Scripto, through having assets as a native function, just simplify that approach so it actually becomes just as intuitive as the conceptual understanding. There are user vaults that are in your wallet controlled by the user that has token A and has token B. The Uniswap smart contract has its own token A and token B vault, which has some internal logic for, for trading those. But in that scenario, if you send token C into that, it just won't accept it. The Uniswap or the DEX um, developer doesn't have to say, if you receive token C, send it back. That, that's handled as a, a guardrail by the Radix engine and, and the network as a whole. That it's just like, I don't know what token C is. The transaction is invalid. And that is a completely different ethos to to Solidity and the EVM environment. And one of the best examples I can give of that is... I'm sure everyone listening who spent any time in crypto will have heard of someone who has sent a token to the smart contract address that it came from. So like, oh, I send USDC to the USDC smart contract. How do I get it back? And everyone just sighs and goes, sorry, you've lost that forever. I mean, one, that's a terrible user experience. Absolutely appalling. Our friends, our families and our, our colleagues aren't going to accept that sort of thing where your money can just fall through the world into a black hole never to be recovered. And even if you're the most conscientious developer, and you're like, well, if you get token C, D, E, F, all the way through to Z, come into this, then send it back or reject it, whatever, that's great. You set the contract live. But the nature of a DLT being an immutable permanent ledger is that what then when someone creates a board ape and then they send the board ape into that contract? Board apes didn't exist when you told it to send back A to Z token. So you never put in a rule in for board ape. Radix Engine and Scripto simplifies all of those sort of things so you can spend time building core functionality because you have confidence
0: in the execution being what you expect. Fantastic. Fantastic. So where do you think all of this is going in terms of sort of DeFi and the part that Radix plays in it? But I guess in a broader way, where do you think we're going to be with DeFi in one year and five years and 10 years in terms of sort of how it will change users sort of financialization of the world i guess well that that's the big money question isn't it let's start from the end state
1: so year n whenever that may be I, I can make good arguments for 10 years 50 years 100 years whatever there is no doubt in my mind that decentralized finance is inevitable it's, and that's not from an ideological standpoint or anything like that it creates better user benefits um for a start but even more importantly it does what the global financial system wants to do better The entire purpose of the global financial system is to allocate capital as efficiently as possible based on opportunity and risk. A single global asset layer does that far better than a silo traditional finance system. And we saw exactly the same thing with the Internet. Like the Internet came out. People weren't entirely sure how it could work, what they could do with it. Started getting a bit of traction and then a load of big companies were like, yeah, we like this like combined network. We're going to make intranet internet maybe had their own little tweak or thing that they could do that was special to that company and there were lots of them for a while You don't hear about intranets that often now because the benefits of a single unified network for information far outweighed the smite advantages of an intranet or a custom-built system for each each company or each silo so just in the same way as the internet did that for information and became the information layer of the world I think Web 3 and, and DeFi and distributed ledger technology will do that for an asset layer for the world So that be it radix or, or whoever that is going to happen in in some shape or some way shape or form Coming more to near term um, and now going to the other end of the spectrum of, of DeFi and web 3 right now is we're miles off from there absolutely miles and it's no one's fault Um the it's a really hard problem. There's loads of things that are barriers to that right now, not in small part, that the user experience, the developer experience is it's horrible. And it's not intuitive. It's not easy to use. Yes, there's some of us who are already in the space, but we're innovators. Like At its peak, DeFi was $200 billion of total value locked. There's around a $400 trillion of assets in the global financial system, not including derivatives. We're a drop in the ocean, even at peak. And when you accept that, you're like, okay, well, what's going to need to change to get this here? And what our view at Radix is is basically everything. You need to have a user experience that isn't just suitable for people like ourselves who are willing to cut up a 28 word seed phrase into three different bits, store it in three locations on carved out of metal. So if the building burns down, we don't lose our entire net worth, have hardware wallet backups, whatever else. Secondly, like, and, and that experience, has to be workable for our friends, for our families, for our colleagues, for our grandparents. Right now, I, I don't think there's anyone who would try and get their nan to understand how MetaMask works. And that's not even covering things like blind signing. Then at the developer experience, we've got to get more people involved in developing. And this is something we've seen countless times. Look at when web, web development became far more accessible. Look at all the incredible websites that were created, the... Abundance of information. How people, when things like social media came out, and YouTube, wherever you're listening to this podcast, became accessible. Look at how that changed society fundamentally. And that was because more developers were able, or more builders really, were able to enter that space. So that's the next piece. And then finally, both of those two things, if you've got a great user experience and a great builder experience, you're going to get a lot of users. Um, and at which point, the system has to scale. Like. There's a big reason why innovations in the internet came from developing faster connection speeds and, and whatever else because until you had a, a way to connect Consistently and be able to handle that data. It, it wasn't usable now The really really hard part of, and why I think radix is well positioned to deal with this other than just taking a full stack approach to tackle all of those problems is that unlike the internet where you can you can upgrade bits of infrastructure a different types you can you have new challenges but different challenges of like last mile connections and stuff like that um DLTs, as we're seeing with things like ethereum for example is whatever you build and set live is perpetual it's going to keep existing and so if you want to upgrade it it's kind of like trying to change like launch being halfway across the atlantic ocean in a plane and going hey i think we should have designed that wing better let's replace it mid-flight it's a monumental challenge whereas If you're able to build the right foundations from the start and roll out knowing what you need to build for the end state, you're in a much stronger position to do that. And, uh, and of course, the the cliched example of this is is something like Google. Google was the 16th search engine. They didn't have the first mover advantage. They got the right product market fit. Things like the iPhone. The iPhone wasn't the first touchscreen portable device. I think Palm Pilot or Dell or someone had that. Um, It wasn't the first mobile phone. It wasn't the first music player that was mobile. It combined a whole bunch of things that made it desirable to end users. Tesla is another good example with electric cars. First movers are not necessarily in the best place. They're innovators. And a big thing that you say we may not want to talk about competitors, but personally, I don't mind talking about competitors because I have a, a huge amount of respect for them. They've done incredible innovative things and they're incredibly intelligent people working on incredibly hard problems. Our view is they're just working on the wrong problems. And just in the same way as the Wright brothers revolutionized flight and propelled humanity to a whole new golden era that was only dreamt about before then, we don't fly from London to New York on a plane that looks like something the Wright brothers built because it required a lot of other things to all fall in place. Jet engines, pressurized cabins, etc., etc. And that rollout is going to take time. So someone um in that in that time frame between between now and year N um where DeFi is one, there's gonna be a lot of innovation and it's gonna happen suddenly. And I, I will never forget one of my defining moments in, in life, as little as it sounds, was I remember when it came on the news that it was the ten year anniversary of the iPhone. And I sat there having having grown up with seeing like iPhones come out, still being amazed the first time I saw one, the, the funny little app where you could pretend to drink a beer and going. that must have been more than 10 years ago, but also it can't have been 10 years because it seemed so recent and such a new thing. But also everybody had a smartphone like 10 years later, if you met someone who didn't have a smartphone, it'd be really unusual. And that happened ever so quickly. And The same happened with the Internet, with Netflix, anything else like that. Technology
0: innovation is on an
1: exponential curve. And
0: so is technology adoption. Well, a hundred percent and um, some great closing remarks. I, I think we could go on and on in terms of uh, discussing many of these topics, Adam, and, and you've, you've got a very good way of articulating it, but I think uh, a fantastic uh, discussion anyway, and, and I think we'll look to find out more of how Radix develops in, in another episode, I'm sure. That that would be great, and if I if I could shamelessly do
1: one one quick little plug, I'm not sure when this is going out, but uh, if it's before December 8th, on December 8th, uh, Radix is doing a a very large event unveiling uh, kind of the last piece of our stack um, called Radfi, so if you just go to radx dot um, You'll you'll see all the details there for Radfi, and if it's after December 8th, uh, just Google Radfi.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'm sure I'm sure plenty of people will be looking at that, and uh, great great to catch up, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.